This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll give you a sneak preview of the October issue of the Dayton Jewish Observer. First, from the Dayton section, Temple Israel among U.S. synagogues targeted with Rosh Hashanah swatting threat. Police responded in minutes. Services continued without disruption. With more than 300 people praying in Temple Israel's Great Hall on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, seven Dayton police cruisers and a Metro Parks cruiser converged to block the congregation's main entrance minutes after receiving word of a swatting threat. Jewish New Year services continued uninterrupted with no incidents through their scheduled 1 p.m. conclusion. Someone called the National Suicide Hotline at 988 and reported that they were going to commit suicide and they were going to take as many Jews at Temple Israel and Dayton with them. Suzanne Shaw, Temple Israel's executive director, told the Observer about the September 16th threat. Swatting calls aim to cause disruption and trigger a large-scale police response. Dayton's police, Shaw said, ended up coming here in force. Dayton Police Information Specialist James Ryder said the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline alerted Montgomery County Regional Dispatch when the threat came in. The dispatch informed Dayton Police a few minutes before 11.30 a.m. Seven cruisers were on the scene a few minutes after 11.30 a.m., joining the police cruiser already stationed there for the services. Shaw said law enforcement told her they traced the swatting call to Washington, D.C. We had all the cruisers blocking the entrance for a while, and they ended up leaving two or three cruisers here for the rest of the day, she said. Before the Jewish New Year, the Anti-Defamation League had already reported 49 bomb threats against synagogues in 13 states over two months. Security organizations across the United States warned Jewish congregations going into the Rosh Hashanah holiday to be on alert for bomb and swatting threats, and that although no previous case was credible, all threats should be taken seriously. JTA reported bomb threats at a number of synagogues across the United States over the two days of Rosh Hashanah. All the cases were deemed not credible and no incidents of violence were reported during the holiday weekend. Even so, at a handful of congregations, Rosh Hashanah services were evacuated or delayed because of the threats. During Rosh Hashanah, the swatting calls broke into public view in at least half a dozen cases. In many cases, the threats have targeted synagogues that livestream their services so the perpetrators can watch the response in real time. We generally have a police cruiser at the entranceway, Shaw said of Dayton's Temple Israel. The police go through here, they go through the perimeter and everything else before services, and everything's locked down at that point. And then we have hired security around the building. And once services start, we just have one door to come in. Everything's armed. We're pretty locked down for the holidays. After Temple Israel's September 16th services, participants joined in a Tashlich ceremony at the bank of the Miami River behind the temple with security and the increased police presence. Police responded the way they should. Everything was locked down tight. Security was out back, and you didn't know anything about it, and you could continue to worship and not worry about that, Shaw said. JTA's Felissa Kramer contributed to this report. 
Next, Tip City Board of Education member regrets Nazi gesture outburst at September 5th meeting. Tip City Board of Education member Ann Zakur told the, the, the Observer on September 7th that she is sorry for giving the Nazi salute and saying see Kyle to then-Board President Simon Patry during a work session September 5th. In hindsight, I regret having done this, Zakur said via email. As I explained to you after four years of attacks by a board member that I believe has been acting as a dictator spreading lies and division, my action was spur of the moment, and I'm very sorry for that. My heart is open to all religions, and it was never my intent to offend anyone of the Jewish community. In an unexpected move, Patry announced at the end of the September 5th meeting that he was resigning from the board, effective that night because of business and family obligations. Zakur had already announced that she was not running for re-election. Her term expires in December. Her apology followed announcements from two of the remaining three Board of Education members, the Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton, Ohio's Regional Anti-Defamation League Office, and Ohio Jewish Communities, the umbrella organization of Ohio's eight Jewish federations. As seen in video of the September 5th Tip City Board of Education working meeting, Zakur attempted to cut in while Patry was speaking. I'm talking. Do not interrupt me. Do not make any noises or else I will. I will not tolerate that. Stop talking, Patry told Zakur. She then raised her hand in the Nazi salute and said, Sieg Heil. Invoking Nazism with a Sieg Heil salute during a school board meeting, a place meant to support and guide our youth, is outrageous, offensive, and potentially dangerous. Kelly Fishman, regional director of the Anti-Defamation League based in Cleveland, told The Observer. Hateful gestures and words cannot be normalized by local officials who are tasked with representing everyone in their communities. The ADL denounces hate in all its forms and is available to provide resources to support the school community. In March, ADL's annual audit of anti-Semitic incidents reported that Ohio experienced a 37% increase in reported anti-Semitic incidents in 2022, 107 compared to 78 in 2021. And 2021's numbers were a 22% increase from the previous year. With a population of just above 10,000 people, Tip City is approximately 16 miles north of Dayton. The Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton is aware of 36 people in 21 Jewish households who live there. Jewish Federation CEO Kathy Gardner described the incident as shocking and disturbing. While I do not believe this woman had anti-Semitic intent, her actions highlight the need for education and a deeper understanding for all, Gardner noted in a statement. This incident is a reminder of how damaging words and actions can be. Flippant, casual references to Hitler, the Nazi regime, or the Holocaust grossly diminish the tragedy that still affects so many. Seeing this image splashed in the news in reference to a disagreement at a board meeting desensitizes people to the terror that ensued at the command of Hitler. In a phone interview with the Observer the evening before her apology, Zakur had difficulty understanding why anyone would be offended by her outburst, though she said, I feel like crawling in a hole. 
It came out of my mouth right there and then because I was just frustrated, Zakor said. This has been building up. I think he, Patri, does have a dictator mentality. It was like the symbolic, sarcastic gesture of submission to a board member trying to act like a dictator. That was in no way meant to be anything towards the Jewish people. If we don't identify, even at a local level, if we don't call out suppression and oppression, I'm not an expert at this, but isn't that how some of this snowballed with Hitler and Nazism? Zakor added she wasn't trying to say that her situation equates to somebody that's gone through the Holocaust, and that what the Nazis did, I'm not saying that Mr. Patry did things like that and physically harmed people. In a September 6th interview with the Dayton Daily News, Patry denied Zakor's allegations that he is a bully and acts like a dictator. He also called on Zakor to resign. In recent years, Tip City Board of Education meetings have become known for acrimony among its board members. In December 2021, petitioners sought through the Miami, Valley, uh, Miami County Common Police Court to have Zakor and Teresa Dunaway removed from the board over what their complaint alleged was a flagrant flagrant misuse of authority and power. At the time, Zakor was the board's vice president, and Dunway was its president. The court had scheduled a trial for this October, but the group that filed the complaint opted not to advance their claim. Zakor said the media coverage of her Sieg Heil incident makes her sick. I've been getting hate mail. You wouldn't believe the four-letter words I'm being called. Howie Beagleman, president and CEO of Ohio Jewish Communities, told The Observer that in 2023, it's never acceptable to compare a political opponent to Hitler. It's never acceptable to use a Nazi salute in debating and discussing policy or political differences. As the Ohio governor and legislators are putting more of a focus on Holocaust education, this is a sad reminder of why such efforts and leadership are needed. Two of the remaining three members of the Tip City Board of Education have denounced Sikor's incident. Amber Drum, who is now president of the Tip City Board of Education, said in a media statement September 6th that she was shocked by Zakor's lack of professionalism. She didn't notice the incident when it happened only afterward when she saw the video. At Tip City Schools, our district motto is where excellence is a tradition, and we ask those in our district to follow the three pillars. Be respectful, be responsible, and to have integrity. Those expectations were not met by Mrs. Zakor's actions at last night's board meeting. Regarding Patry, who resigned as president and from the board September 5th, Drum said in the statement that she has never felt bullied by him or been made to feel less than by anything he has said to me. Board of Education member Teresa Dunaway, who was out of town during the September 5th meeting, declined to comment. TIP Board of Education member Richard Main Sr. said in an email interview that, like Drum, he didn't see the incident when it occurred. I, too, was offended and insulted when I saw the video replay. Mainz said, no one should imitate Hitler. My father fought in the U.S. Army to defeat Hitler and the Nazis. I'm sure my father is equally offended, even though he is now deceased. The Observer reached out to Tip City's mayor, Mike McFarland, for an interview about the incident. He replied by email, regarding the unfortunate situation that occurred, the city is not involved with the school board, as they are a separate organization and not under city control. The city has no comment at this time. Next from the Observer, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories find platform at Westchester Tea Party by Sam Fisher, CincyJewFolk.com. 
Cincinnati's Jewish Community Relations Council has condemned the Westchester Tea Party for hosting a speaker with anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and for spreading those ideas through email and social media. On September 5th, the Westchester Tea Party hosted author Harold Zeiger, who addressed the group for an hour. Over the course of his talk, he made several anti-Semitic remarks. His full talk to the group was posted on the party's public Vimeo account and shared in an email that included excerpts from his presentation. The Westchester Tea Party subsequently repeated many of these ideas in in an email sent to their membership on September 9th, the Cincinnati JCRC said in a statement. The Westchester Tea Party has not responded to requests for comment. Cincinnati's JCRC was made aware of the incident over the following weekend and after conducting a review, found a history of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories on the party's social media profiles and made the statement condemning the group's anti-Semitism. We were informed that the Westchester Tea Party had platformed an extreme anti-Semitic speaker, disseminated anti-Semitic content to their email list, and posted much anti-Semitic content over a long space of time on their Facebook and Gab accounts, said Rabbi Ari June, director of Cincinnati's JCRC. A glance at the Westchester Tea Party's social media and website shows numerous posts that contain anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. The posts cover a range of anti-Semitic tropes, including the myth that Jews control world politics, banking, and control the media. The Great Replacement Theory, a white supremacist conspiracy theory that claims Jews are attempting to replace white Christians with minority groups. Blood Libel, a centuries-old anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that Jews sacrifice Christian children to use their blood in religious ceremonies. That Jews are disloyal, a conspiracy theory that claims Jews are only loyal to other Jews and pushing a Jewish agenda. Ziger was promoting his latest book. He claims on his website that he was born in East Germany and was a card-carrying communist until his confrontation with God and meeting his wife who was raised in a Christian home. The Tea Party movement was founded in 2009 within the Republican Party. It opposes the Washington political establishment and espouses conservative and libertarian philosophy, including reduced government spending, lower taxes, and reduction of the national debt and the federal budget, the federal budget deficit. The Cincinnati CRC said in its statement that Republican elected officials had voiced their support for the Jewish community and did not condone the group's behavior. This isn't about typical left versus right politics, but about setting boundaries for reasonable discourse, June said. We cannot allow anti-Semitism to spread further into the mainstream. Addressing anti-Semitism head-on is the best way to keep it from spreading, he added. We might be tempted to not draw extra attention to this extremist group, but ignoring anti-Semitism will not slow their spread or make them go away, June said. As Louis Brandeis said, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And next, from The Observer, on Rosh Hashanah, neo-Nazi flyers dropped uh, at Tip City and homes in Cincinnati. One city near Dayton and five communities in the Cincinnati area were littered with neo-Nazi flyers on Rosh Hashanah, September 16th and 17th. In Tip City, 16 miles north of Dayton in Miami County, a lot more than 50 hate flyers were dropped in front of homes between 9 p.m. September 16th and the afternoon of September 17th 
Tip City Chief of Police Greg Adkins told the Observer. Neo-Nazi flyers were also discovered on those days across the neighborhoods of downtown Cincinnati, Walnut Hills, East Walnut Hills, the city of Loveland, and Anderson Township. The six different versions of the hate flyers in TIP all carry the name of the Aryan Freedom Network and its website. At least two of the flyers distributed in the Cincinnati area indicated they originated from the Aryan Freedom Network. CincyJewFolk.com reported that the flyers in the Cincinnati area contained neo-Nazi images along with links to conspiracy websites such as the anti-Semitic Jew Watch. According to the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism, the Aryan Freedom Network is a small, growing neo-Nazi group based in DeKalb, Texas. It claims to have chapters in 25 states, including Ohio. It directs its hatred toward Jews, black people, and the LGBTQ community. Definitely a lot of the area got hit, Adkins said of Tip City, where one of his police officers found and collected the hate flyers in several neighborhoods. The people who did it definitely spent some money because they put them all in Ziploc bags with gravel in the bags, he said. Our belief is they drove down the street and just tossed them on the curb lawns, and that way they wouldn't trigger a ringing doorbell. The Anti-Defamation League's regional office confirmed that hate activity in southwest Ohio has expanded in recent months. These types of activities are increasingly being deployed by anti-Semites and white supremacists to sow hatred and attempt to intimidate our communities, ADL Regional Director Kelly Fishman said. The flyers hit Tip City 11 days after Tip City Board of Education member Anne Zakur sarcastically gave the Nazi salute and said Sieg Heil to then-Board President Simon Patry during a September 5th work session. Over the next few days, local media coverage and video of the outburst were picked up by local media outlets across the United States and ultimately landed at national and international news media. I think the climate surrounded that could have play, surrounding that could have played into the fact that they, the flyers, were delivered so soon after that had occurred, Atkins said, but we have nothing to say that it did or did not. September 5th was also when the Westchester Tea Party hosted author Harold Zeiger, who made several anti-Semitic remarks. The incident and its video distribution led the Cincinnati Jewish Community Relations Council to track and denounce the Westchester Tea Party's history of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories on the party's social media profiles. Adkins said that in his 23 years with the force, he's never seen hate flyers distributed in Tip City. He added that he had no evidence that the flyer drop was timed to the Jewish New Year. Steve Shuchat, who has lived in Tip City for 23 years, also said he has never seen hate flyers in Tip City, though he did recall anti-Semitic flyers that were distributed in western Miami County about five years ago. Four years ago, Tip City was the site of three incidents of hate vandalism when swastikas were found spray-painted on two sidewalks along Plum Street and on a CSX Railroad electric box. One included the phrase, White Lives Matter. Another was tagged, America. Shuchat is president of Temple Anshayamath in Piqua, also in Miami County, where his family goes back generations. He didn't receive a flyer at his home, but has reviewed the flyers tip police collected. 
It's very disturbing that anyone is targeting Tip City with this kind of horrible information, he said. I don't think this is specifically someone who is living in Tip distributing this to Tip Homes. Also on Rosh Hashanah, on September 16th, seven Dayton police cruisers and a Metro Parks cruiser converged to block Temple Israel's main entrance minutes after receiving word of a swatting threat. More than 300 people were praying in Temple Israel at the time. In August, the Washington Township neighborhood of Brittany Hills, Woodbourne, south of Dayton, was also hit with white supremacist flyers. Even if the perpetrators of such flyer drops are found, Atkins said the only charge that might apply would be littering. The message on the flyers, he said, is protected as free speech. Whether it was legal or criminal, the flyers that have been distributed demonstrate how important it is that individuals and our community voice our disgust and state that this is not welcome in our community, said Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton CEO Kathy Gardner. Speaking out in public will raise the communal voice that the ideology behind the flyer is hateful, plain, and simple. Speaking out is the action of an upstander and not a bystander. Sam Fisher of CincyJewFolk.com contributed to this story. Next from the Dayton section, community trip to Budapest, Prague, London, January 28th to February 5th. The Jewish Federation, in partnership with Beth Abraham Synagogue, Beth Jacob Congregation, Chabad, Temple Israel, and Bethor, Temple Bethor, will lead a trip with a focus on Jewish sites in Budapest, Prague, and London, January 28th through February 5th. The Jewish communities of Budapest and Dayton are connected through the Partnership Together program of the Jewish Agency for Israel. P2G facilitates people-to-people relationships through cultural, social, medical, educational, and economic programs. Also in P2G are Israel's Western Galilee and 16 other Jewish communities across the central United States. A member of P2G's Budapest Young Adult Group will lead an architectural tour of the city. Time in Budapest will include a night cruise on the Danube River. Touring in Prague and London are in conjunction with the 60th anniversary of the rescue and restoration of 1,564 Czech Torah scrolls. In Czechoslovakia in 1942, the Nazis warehoused the scrolls at the Central Jewish Museum in Prague. According to the Memorial Scrolls Trust Museum in London, members of Prague's Jewish community devised a way to bring the religious treasures from the deserted provincial communities to the comparative safety of Prague. The Nazis were persuaded to accept this plan and more than 100,000 items were sent to the museum. Prague's Jewish leaders hoped that someday the liquidated artifacts might be returned to their communities. After the war, the scrolls became the property of the communist government. In 1964, London's Westminster Synagogue purchased the scrolls with the help of private donations. Westminster Synagogue established the Memorial Scrolls Trust, Memorial Scrolls Trust to conserve, restore, and distribute the Czech scrolls. Temple Bethor and Temple Israel are each home to a Czech Torah scroll on permanent loan from the trust. Beth Abraham and Beth Jacob also house Torah scrolls that came out of Nazi-occupied Europe. In Prague, trip participants will learn details of how the scrolls ended up there and about Nazi-looted Czech Judaica. In London, those on the trip will join Jews from around the world at the Memorial Scrolls Trust Museum 
for its anniversary celebration. The cost of the trip is $2,450 per person for double occupancy. Single occupancy is available for an additional $300. Additional expenses are airfare to and from Europe and some meals when participants tour on their own. Jewish Federation CEO Kathy Gardner said the Jewish Federation will accept applications to provide emerging leaders with stipends of $1,500 each to offset the trip's expenses. For more information about the trip and stipend applications, contact Gardner at cgardner at jfgd.net or rabbis with any of the participating organizations. And next from the Dayton section of the Observer, Building a Singing Community. Beth Abraham's Rabbi Glazer introduces Nigun Circles. Rabbi Aubrey L. Glazer isn't sure what will come out of the Nigun Circles he's introducing to Beth Abraham Synagogue, and that's what makes it exciting. Once we get into the rhythm of this, there will be gifts that just emerge from the synergy of the circle, he says. We're going to discover it together. And Nigun is a wordless, mystical prayer melody based in the Hasidic traditions of Eastern Europe. The power of the Nigun, the rabbi says, is its ability to be more inclusive, to reach people, to bring spiritual experiences to anyone and everyone. Glazer borrows a term from song leader Joey Weisenberg, who led Beth Abraham's first Nigun circles over the weekend of the rabbi's installation at the conservative synagogue in August. He speaks about it as building singing communities. There's something about the infrastructure of building vibrant, authentic communities that can happen through sounds and resonances, and especially melodies without words that bring us to a deeper place of connection that Hasidism understood at its core. It's something old, and it's something new. Weisenberg is the founder and director of Hadar's Rising Song Institute, an incubator for musicians and prayer leaders who seek to reinvent Jewish spiritual music. Beginning October 14 and continuing the second Saturday of each month, Glazer will lead a Nugun circle at 12.30 p.m. following Kiddush lunch after Shabbat services. The monthly Nugun circle with meditations, he says, is based on another Hasidic tradition. We're going to have a nigun for the month, and it will also be related to a phrase from the Torah. I see these circles as labs or incubation spaces. We're going to see what emerges from it, and then it's inevitable that there's going to be spillover. People will be singing differently. They'll be sitting differently. Nigun circles organically lead some participants and facilitators to create their own nigunim in the process. That's the basis of a lot of what Joey was doing. Glazer's goal is to expose his congregants and Dayton's Jewish community to a way of building community that isn't prevalent here. Joey's been training a lot of prayer leaders to follow this methodology of building singing communities. And that's what I really wanted to bring to Beth Abraham. Glazer also brings his passion for various kinds of community building through Hasidism's multiple forms. Most Jews, he says, are unaware there are 37 different kinds of Hasidism. One kind that captures the rabbi's soul forcefully is what he calls Tiberian Hasidism. His passion to learn about this little-known community has led him to co-translate and co-edit with scholar Nehemiah Poland two volumes of a book series on the subject, 
from Tiberius with Love, with four more volumes on the way. Beginning in the late 1770s, Rabbi Abraham HaKohen of Kalisk and Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk led a short-lived Hasidic community in Tiberias that had arrived from Eastern Europe. It was different from the Hasidism of Eastern Europe, Glazer said. It was a model that was more horizontal. The Vitebsker and Kalisker Rebbe's co-led it together at the same time. They wanted to ensure that the newness, the freshness, the dynamism of what the Baal Shem Tov revealed wasn't becoming ossified and lost in these structures. The Kaliska Rebbe defined what its adherents strove for as Dibuk Chaberim, Glazer says, to be deeply connected and immersed in this absorbing experience that we can call the infinite God. He says the group is concerned with what happens when you don't have those very high moments that get you into a place where you totally, you were totally absorbed in the process, rather, where you were totally absorbed in the oneness of being. And so they said, when you feel like you've gone down a few steps, when you're off that place of connectivity, you can connect just as deeply by connecting to the group energy. The book Chaberim is the glue to that absorptive quality that happens when you connect with friends around you. When he learned that teaching 50, 15 years ago from Nahamya Polin, it, it inspired Glazer to dig deep into research about this lost community of Tiberius and its relevance for today's world. This month, Glazer hopes to bring the sounds of Tiberian Nugunim to life for the first time in centuries at Beth Abraham Synagogue. Four rabbis from across the United States who are expert musicians will join him at Beth Abraham in an intensive 72-hour workshop. For the workshop, Glazer has been granted access to the Meyer Shimon Geshuri archives of Hasidic Song and Dance of Israel's Jewish Music Research Center, at Hebrew University of Jerusalem. An ethnomusicologist, Geshuri musically notated thousands of Hasidic melodies he heard in the mid-20th century, noted who he heard sing them, and where those who sang them said the melodies originated. Glazer describes the Geshuri archives as like a recipe book of Hasidic melodies. Only six or seven melodies connected to the Vitebsker and Kaliska Rebbe's from Geshur, the Geshuri archives have been published. But there's more, much, much more. What I want to do with the group is to go through the archives and workshops some of these melodies that have basically been almost lost to history. We're going to camp out in the chapel, we're going to have a recording studio set up there, and from dusk till dawn, we'll pray together, we'll eat together, we'll study together, and we're going to spend most of our time going through each of these pieces that we find in the archives. Gishori says this one comes from Tiberias. Let's try this one. Let's move it around the circle and see what happens. On Monday, October 23rd at 7 p.m., the rabbis will share what they've discovered in a public program at Beth Abraham. We don't know what it's going to be, Glazer says. It could be a teaching. It could be a couple of nigunim. It's going to be something exper uh, experiential. We want people to be drawn in like we did with Joey. Let's learn this nigun together and see what it feels like. Let's see if there are any future applications we might discover in the process. What does it touch in our soul? Their findings, he says, will form volume six of his Tiberian Hasidism book series, 
with contributions from contemporary experts in Nigunim and musicians from Orthodox America and Israel. Glazer begins a new virtual Lunch and Learn series October 2nd that will continue Mondays from noon to 12.45 p.m. He'll introduce participants to what he calls the 37 different flavors of Hasidism. My goal is to go through all 37 flavors, try to share with people as many of the Nigunim as I can find, he says. I want to celebrate what exists, but I also want to uncover the things that people don't even know. We can complicate and also enhance our spiritual lives by understanding how rich Judaism really is from a spiritual perspective. Along with all the rabbis' Hasidic programming he launches in October, he celebrates the release of his new book with Rabbi Martin Cohen, Merest Breath, a contemporary translation of Ecclesiastes with two new commentaries. Glazer describes Ecclesiastes as the strangest book of the Bible and one of his favorites. It's the most interesting, fascinating book that you never would have imagined would be part of the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, and it is. Beth Abraham will host a book release celebration via Zoom at 7.30 p.m. Monday, October 2nd. Pre-registration is required at bethabrahamdayton.org. I've been working on it for a lot of years, and it's going to be fun, Glazer says of Merest Breath. We wanted to give it a contemporary recharge with a translation making it fresh and accessible and commentaries that speak to the breadth and depth of where these great works of sacred literature come from. And a recap of those events coming up in October, Hasidic Nigunim and Study with Beth Abraham Synagogue's Rabbi Aubrey L. Glazer. Beth Abraham is located at 305 Sugar Camp Circle in Oakwood, and the number is 937-293-9520. Virtual Lunch and Learns will be held Mondays from noon to 12.45 p.m. beginning October 2nd. And the Lunch and Learn topic is Who's Afraid of Hasidism and Why Does It Still Matter? Journeying Through the Foundations of Hasidism Today. And that's exploring those 37 flavors of Hasidism. Registration is required at BethAbrahamDayton.org. The Nigun Circle Monthly Meditations are on sa the second Saturday of each month at 12.30 p.m. after Kiddush lunch, beginning October 14th. And the Tiberian Nigun Circle, Monday, October 23rd at 7 p.m. Clergy musicians share discoveries from their, their Tiberian Hasidism workshop. And next, from the opinion section of The Observer, Ukraine, 1941 and 2023. A Personal Reflection by Jim Nathanson I was standing in what looked to be a pleasant city park. Though it was August, a light breeze made for a comfortable day, but I felt anything but comfortable as I stood and just stared at the ground. It looked so very ordinary, but it was anything but ordinary. There once had been a deep ravine here. It had been filled. The ground leveled as if altering the landscape could change what happened here. Nothing could. Eighty-two years ago, in September 1941, nearly 33,800 Jews were butchered at this site. The ravine was Babin Yar, located in Kiev, Ukraine's capital. I was in Ukraine for five days in the midst of its war with Russia for no other reason than to show my support for the Ukrainian people in their battle against Putin's naked aggression. But I couldn't go to the Ukraine without stopping at Bob and Yar. 
Not only was it the site of one of the most horrific episodes of the Holocaust, but during the Shoah, few people anywhere collaborated more with the Nazis than did the Ukrainians. And few areas saw their Jewish population so thoroughly decimated with a pre-war population of 870,000 reduced to only 17,000 by war's end. In my support for the Ukraine of today, I needed to make peace with the memory of the tens of thousands of my fellow Jews who died in the Ukraine of yesterday. Helping me with this reconciliation is an especially insightful book by Timothy Snyder, Black Earth, The Holocaust, as History and Warning. A native Daytonian, Snyder is a history professor at Yale University. Snyder's core thesis is that minority populations depend most on the protection of the state and upon the rule of law, and it is they who suffer most from anarchy and war. The Nazis soon learned that the first step in ridding the world of Jews was to destroy the states in which they lived, to turn Jews into stateless people no longer under the protection of any legal authority. The Holocaust was the most brutal, Snyder argues, in areas such as western Ukraine where political authority was decimated by the back and forth of Russian and German occupations, each of which set out through sheer brutality to dismantle local political structures, in the case of the Russians to build a new society, and in the case of the Germans to create stateless regions that could be colonized for the benefit of the Reich. The degree of state destruction and the obliteration of the rule of law determined the extent local populations joined in the killing of Jews, not the ethnicity of the killers. This distinction made no difference to the millions of Jews who were murdered, nor does it expunge the culpability of those who did the killing, but it should make a difference in how we view the descendants of their murderers today. Nonetheless, many of Ukraine's current allies do question their continued honoring of nationalist leaders who fanned anti-Semitic sentiment and often sided with the Nazis committing numerous atrocities against Jews and others they viewed as sympathetic to the Soviets. Just this January, for example, the Ukrainian parliament commemorated the birth of Stepan Bandera, who was the leader of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, the coalition that led the battle for Ukrainian independence, but that also often collaborated with the Nazis. In April 1941, for example, the OUN declared that Jews were the foremost enemy of Ukraine and that OUN combats the Jews as a prop of the Muscovite Bolshevik regime. Yad Vashem notes that months before Bob and Yar, Ukrainian nationalists were directly responsible for the deaths of at least 6,000 Jews. Today's obsessive political correctness would have us judge all historic figures by today's standards with little or no recognition of the historical context within which these individuals lived and left their mark on history. But those of us who question this obsessiveness recognize that our heroes often not only had feet of clay, but sometimes the stench of history clings to their memory. The Ukrainian people should be allowed their nationalist heroes, however intense that stench might be.
We Americans, after all, haven't stopped purchasing Ford automobiles just because Henry Ford was one of the most outrageous American anti-Semites of the early 20th century. We haven't stopped listening to Richard Wagner's music just because he was one of the most outrageous anti-Semites of the 19th century. And we haven't torn down the monuments to Charles Lindbergh just because he was our nation's foremost fascist sympathizer up until December 7, 1941. It's also worth noting that no place in Europe has a longer history of a Jewish presence than Ukraine. There is even evidence that Jews were living in Greek settlements in the Crimea as early as the 4th century BCE, and much of modern-day Ukraine east of the Dnipro River was part of the Khazarian Empire, whose nobility and many of its citizens adopted Judaism around 800 CE. The Khazaria largely disappeared by the mid-10th century. There are records of Khazarian Jews in the vicinity of present-day Ukraine as late as the 12th century. My hotel in Kiev was located in the Podil, one of the city's oldest sections, now a bustling entertainment district even as the war rages. A thriving Ashkenazi community existed there as early as the 11th century. Even today, the Podil is home to two early and important choral synagogues. A short walk from my hotel was the Rosenberg or Podil Synagogue, a superb Moorish-style building completed in 1895. Not too far away is another late 19th century choral synagogue, the Brodsky Synagogue, built more in Romanesque revival style that boasts both a kosher market and kosher restaurant. As I walked through both synagogues, two of seven I found in Kiev, I marveled at the endurance of the local Jewish community. Henry Abramson, a Turo University historian and an expert on Ukrainian Jewish history, notes that the intermittent periods of violence against Jews doesn't negate over a thousand years of friendship. He further notes a long history of cultural interchange that wouldn't have occurred unless Jews and Ukrainians were interacting on friendly terms for most of their shared history, or, as he puts it, unless Ukrainian and Jewish children were spending time in each other's kitchens. A Pew Research poll published in March 2018 found that Ukrainians are far more likely to welcome Jews as fellow citizens than the populations of any other Eastern European nation. Only 5% of Ukrainians would not accept Jews as fellow citizens, compared, for example, to 23% of Lithuanians, 22% of Romanians, 18% of Poles, and 14% of Russians. Nothing, of course, speaks more about the Ukraine of today than the fact that its current president, Vladimir Zelensky, is a Jew. Elected in 2019 on an anti-corruption platform with over 70% of the vote, and after playing a Ukrainian president in a TV comedy, this improbable politician has evolved into a charismatic wartime leader who has kept his nation and its allies united. His religion has never been an issue, and even his political spat with the popular mayor of Kiev has had no religious overtones. Only Putin has tried to make an issue of Zelensky's Jewishness. That his nation has rallied around him is a testament to both President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people. 
But there is something else that I think speaks strongly to the Ukraine of today. The actual trigger that reminded me how important it was that I visit Babin Yar. There is a Hebrew song, Eli, Eli, my Lord, my Lord, that many of us have heard sung on Yom HaShoah, the yearly event we hold to commemorate the Holocaust. The words were originally a poem written by a young woman, Hannah Senesh, who at the age of 19 in 1939 had immigrate, immigrated to British mandate Palestine to escape the anti-Semitism she faced in her native Hungary. Hannah Senesh was a true woman of valor. In 1943, she enlisted in the British Army and volunteered to be trained as a resistance fighter. On March 14, 1944, she parachuted into Yugoslavia and spent three months with Josef Tito's partisans before working her way north toward her ultimate objective, Budapest. Before, uh, soon after reaching Hungary, she was captured. Despite enduring five months of interrogation and torture, she never divulged a single detail of her mission. On November 7, 1944, she was executed by firing squad. In January, Israel's ambassador to Ukraine, Michael Brodsky, shared on Twitter the Ukrainian army choir singing Eli Eli at Babin Yar during ceremonies marking International Holocaust Remembrance Day. The menorah where I was able to place a memorial stone as a tribute to the Jews killed at Bab and Yar and the focal point of this wonderful video. The heroism of Hannah Senesh during the Shoah and the hero heroism of the Ukrainian people today both speak eloquently to that spirit within us that yearns for freedom and demands that we fight evil when encountered. Our Haggadah, which we read each Passover, reminds us that this is the responsibility of each and every generation. When we think of the Ukrainian people, we should never forget those who died at Babin Yar, but we should also remember that moment in the midst of their own bitter struggle against tyranny when the Ukrainian people did honor to their memory. Jim Nathanson, a Dayton-based political and public affairs consultant for 30 years, was political director of the Republican National Committee in 1992 and had previously taught political science at colleges in New York and Ohio. And next in the religion section of The Observer, how much should we depend on a tool that could become the master? By Rabbi Haviva Horvitz, Temple Beth Shalom, Middletown. Give me a topic and ask me to write an article or teach a course, and I will have no trouble. I enjoy doing the research and will happily share what I have learned and add my own thoughts and opinions. However, ask me to write an article on anything I wish to convey, and I am stumped. So, I did something I never thought I would ever do. I asked Microsoft's Bing AI chatbot to write an appropriate article of approximately 750 words for the October edition of the Dayton Jewish Observer. Within moments, I had before me an article of 788 words, which detailed the holidays of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. The article even referenced several congregations in the Dayton area for services and programs. It was interesting, but it wasn't me. In addition, by the time this article is being read, the first two holidays will be over for the year. However, the experience had me concerned. Recently, I was having breakfast with a group of friends, and we were discussing AI and the powers we are giving to computers. These programs are slowly learning from us, and what are currently useful research tools 
can easily become something much greater and possibly something dangerous. We debated whose jobs were at risk of being taken over, and I stated rather smugly that as a rabbi, my job needs a human touch. Now I am not so sure. It was very easy, perhaps too easy, to have my computer write for me. My first thoughts were with regard to the matter of ethics. Is it ethical to use an article or a sermon written by my computer? According to Microsoft's Bing AI chatbot, my AI-powered co-pilot for the web, the matter of ethics depends on the purpose and context of the article. I was given a short list of some possible ethical issues, which included plagiarism, misinformation, and privacy. It occurred to me that in Judaism, when discussing sinat chinam, or baseless hatred, an example often used is quoting something and not giving the original author credit. When I was looking for a specific story for one of my High Holiday sermons, I had asked Microsoft's Bing AI chatbot and was given a similar story, but it had a different ending. When I asked who wrote the story, the computer program answered, I did, almost proudly, if that is possible. I realized then that plagiarism is going to be a concern. Next, my focus turned to the current writer's strike. Again, I conferred with Microsoft Bing AI chatbox uh, chat and was informed that the cause of the writer's strike is a lack of agreement on a new contract between the Writers Guild of America and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Three main issues in the strike were listed, including the use of artificial intelligence in the writing process. Like me, the writers are concerned that this wonderful tool might one day replace them and that one day seems to be getting closer and closer. As Rabbi Dan Wol David Wolpe posted on his Facebook page recently, the irony of the OpenAI chat GPT is that it will ultimately destroy the very intelligence and creativity that enable it to be created. As we have concluded the high holiday season for 5784, and have begun the new year with a clean slate, perhaps this is a good time to question how much we want to depend on AI. Are we capable, capable of using this technology as a tool and not allow it to go any further? In an article by Rabbi Yitzchak Zweig from April 23rd, found on H.com, it says, Humans have, been, have long been aware of the possibility of this coming to pass, one would hope that measures are being taken to safeguard humanity. Hollywood has been warning us of the dangers of this technology for over 50 years. 2001, A Space Odyssey springs to mind, and, of course, there are many others like The Matrix and iRobot. His article raises concern about an AI-run world where decisions and actions are based on data analysis. The human touch would be lost. Rabbi Zweig continues, this is similar to the difference between living in a world created by accident versus living in a theocentric universe, a divinely created world that has intelligent design and is purpose-driven. One of the main features of living in a world created by God is that life has sanctity and innate value. Most importantly, and a primary tenet of Jewish philosophy, is the core belief that God created the world with the sole purpose of benefiting mankind and that the Almighty seeks a relationship with man. So, does AI help our relationship with the Almighty or get in the way? Can AI make the mundane holy as we try to do, or is it too robotic? 
In the meantime, I wrote this article myself and am happy with myself for doing that, even if it is a little too long and not perfect. Shana Tova. Holocaust-themed student art at DAI. Through November 12th, 20 student artworks from the 2023 Max May and Lydia May Holocaust Art and Writing Contest will be on exhibit at the Dayton Art Institute. The annual contest for area students in grades 5 through 12 is named after the grandparents of Dayton Holocaust Resource Center Director Renee Friedman. And next, the Mazel Tov section of the Observer. Renee and Frank Handel have joyfully welcomed the births of two granddaughters. Josh and Ariel Handel of Cincinnati welcomed daughter Emmy Blake on February 27th. Emmy joins big sister Marlo, three. Maternal parents are Jonathan and Shari Mann of Cincinnati. Dory and Jeff Harold welcomed the arrival of Marin Ava on April 14th. Paternal grandparents are Kathy and Bill Harold of Atlanta. Both girls were named for their great-grandmother, Maxine Rubin of Blessed Memory. Dayton Children's has presented Dr. Michael Albert with its Wallace B. Taggart Award, its highest physician honor. Mike has led the orthopedic department at Dayton Children's for nearly all of his 34-year career. He arrived there during his first rotation studying at Wright State University Boonshaft School of Medicine. Mike has created cutting-edge, minimally invasive surgery procedures that have greatly improved the efficiency of spinal surgeries for young patients. Amy and Marshall Lackman are now the proud owners of Bill's Donuts in Centerville. Matt Arnovitz received the Miami Valley School's Distinguished Alumnus Award at the MBS Annual Alumni Awards Dinner. Marvin Alinsky will be inducted to the Dayton Region Walk of Fame at its October 11th luncheon at Sinclair Community College. The retired CEO of Five Rivers Metro Parks, Mark was a driving force. Marv was a driving force behind Adventure Central, which has served Dayton's youths for nearly two decades. The Walk of Fame is on West Third Street between Shannon and Broadway Streets in the Wright Dunbar Business District. Merrill Hattenbach has joined Hillel Academy as its administrative assistant. She's also responsible for recruiting new families to the Jewish Day School. Lake Miller, Education Director with the National Conference for Community and Justice of Greater Dayton, is now an Ohio Certified Prevention Consultant. Melanie Barrett, CEO of Bailey Bug, comp- competed on Season 11 of Amazon Prime's The Blocks, a competition program for startups. Based in Springfield, Bailey Bug manufactures capes for wheelchair users, The capes, which wrap around the front, are produced by people with disabilities through vocational guidance services in Columbus. Season 11 of the Blocks is scheduled for release in a few months. Taking Israel, A Journey of African American Students, a 2015 documentary produced by retired Wilberforce University Vice President of Development Eric V.A. Winston and directed by Vincent Singleton, was shown on Maryland Public Television in September in conjunction with the station's annual Historically Black Colleges and Universities Week and is now streaming via MPT for two years. In Taking Israel, Wilberforce alumni return to Israel and recall summers of work, teaching, and study there. Between 1988 and 2002, 150 Wilberforce students completed their summer co-ops in Israel with Winston's guidance. Send your Mazel Tov announcements to me at m w e i s s 
at jfgd.net. And from the Arts and Culture section of The Observer, Lessons Learned from People and Pets kick off JCC's annual cultural arts and books series. A New York Times best-selling author, veterinarian, and a National Jewish Book Award-winning longtime NBC News Israel correspondent, bureau chief, and bureau chief, will raise the curtain on the JCC's 2023-24 Cultural Arts and Book Series in October. Karen Fine opens the series October 19 with a talk about her new memoir, The Other Family Doctor, a veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. A holistic veterinarian who celebrates the relationships between animals and people, Fine is an associate veterinarian at Central Animal Hospital in Lemonster, Massachusetts. For 25 years, she owned and operated her own household practice in Massachusetts. She is also the author of a textbook, Narrative Medicine in Veterinary Practice. An hour before Fine's talk, CABS will host an animal resources fair. Prolific author and television journalist Martin Fletcher returns for his third talk on the CABS program October 29th at University of Dayton. This time he'll discuss his latest book, Teachers, The Ones I Can't Forget. He shares stories of what he's learned over his four decades of reporting. My business was to meet people on the worst day of their lives, tell their story, and move on often to a different tragedy in a different country, Fletcher recounts in the book's introduction. I needed thick skin, but many left a scratch on my soul. I learned from their lives, and they changed me. The JCC series continues with a dozen more events through April. For details, go to jewishdayton.org. And to recap, the JCC Cultural Arts, Cultural, Cultural Arts, and book series opens with Karen Fine Thursday, October 19th with an Animal Services Resource Fair at 6 p.m., followed by her talk at 7 p.m. at the Boone Shop, Center for Jewish Culture and Education, 525 Versailles Drive, Centerville. The cost is $5 per person. Donations of pet food, cat litter, and animal treats are encouraged. And in partnership with the University of Dayton Department of Communications, Cultural Arts and Book Series will present Martin Fletcher on Sunday, October 29th at 2.30 p.m. at Science Center 114. Free parking on campus is available at Lot B. The cost is $7, free for students with valid ID. And tickets for both programs are available at jewishdayton.org forward slash events by calling 937-610-1555 or at the door. And now just a reminder of some of the upcoming holidays on the Jewish calendar. Sukkot, the Festival of Booths, begins on this Friday evening. That's the first day of Sukkot, which is also Shabbat, Friday, September 29th. And it goes through October 6th. It's named after the shelters or the huts the Jews lived in while wandering in the desert after the exodus from Egypt, the biblical narrative. It's marked by building Sukkot, these shelters, to eat meals in during the festival, and in the synagogue by processions with the lulav, palm branches with myrtle and willow, and etrog. And that's followed up by Shemini at Zeret, the Eighth Day Assembly, on October 7th. It allowed historically an extra day in Jerusalem for Jewish pilgrims on their journey to the temple. And then Simchat Torah, Rejoicing of the Torah, October 8th, 
commemorating the annual cycle of reading the Torah is concluded and a new cycle begins. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, and I thank you for listening.